Let's start with just a general reaction. We heard from you some yesterday, shortly after the verdict. Is this misdemeanor conviction disappointing? Absolutely not. You've got to remember that this guy was convicted of reprehensible conduct. He conspired to willfully violate mine safety laws, laws that were designed to keep miners safe, laws that were written in blood uh, of coal miners' past. We can't do anything about the penalty that is associated with that law. If you put these crimes up against each other and looked at them objectively and asked somebody on the street, what's the most serious crime uh, that this individual was charged with, they would put their finger on willfully violating mine safety laws, agreeing with others to break the mine safety laws every time. So, no, this was always about that charge. That was count one. That was that was the centerpiece of our evidence. That was the the vast majority of our evidence. You sat through the trial. You saw it. That was the most powerful evidence that we had that went to that particular crime. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I think anyone is uh, not um, excited at the prospect of uh, going to jail for any length of time. Uh, and it is a substantial fall from the boardroom to potential incarceration in federal prison. Still, I think, you know, it was disappointing to a degree for some of the family members who lost loved ones at the Upper Big Branch Mine. And I think a lot of other people who maybe followed the trial or maybe people who didn't follow the trial just heard the verdict, they were kind of confused about why something that sounds so serious doesn't carry a heavier charge. You can lie to Wall Street and it's a felony, but if you if you take part in a conspiracy in which 29 people lost their lives, it's only a year in prison. Possibly. I mean, that's the max. Do you think it's time for Congress to take another look at the Mine Act? Is it time for them to make these kinds of crimes more serious? I don't blame people for being confused. We were confused. Uh, You know, we had been working with the mine laws for a a long time. It's always baffled me that um, the Mine Act uh, is really skewed to more seriously punish those folks who are on the ground. You know, if they lie in an exam book at the mine level, that's a felony. Whereas if someone willfully violates a mine safety law, that's a misdemeanor. It's always been confusing to me. I, 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 don't, uh, uh, I don't really have any um, explanation for it other than, uh, you know, go back <laughs> to, to look at how this, these uh, crimes came about. But this was always the case. This was, you know, we, we knew this going in. There isn't, uh, you know, in an industrial homicide charge, that, that does not exist. There is not any more serious crime that we could have charged with respect to violation of these laws than the one that we did charge. Um, so uh, I, I understand the confusion, um, but again, that's, that's not our branch of government. I'd like to get into some of the specifics. Is there any specific piece of evidence that you all think the jury relied on when convicting on count one? Is there anything that sticks out to you that you think that had to be the thing? Well, I mean, there, there, there's been a juror who's, who's talked about particular pieces of evidence, but um, I always thought the most powerful 
piece of evidence was actually the body of uh, testimony from the miners. Uh, I mean, you sat in the courtroom, you saw um, the compelling testimony of miner after miner talking about the very serious willful violations that were going on underground day in and day out. Uh, and that was buttressed by the Ross Memorandum that told uh, the defendant himself uh, what Mr. Ross was hearing from miners, not just at UBB, from a, but from across Massey, that matched up almost verbatim to what you know, these miners got up on the stand and, and said during trial. Looking back, is there anything that you think you or your team would do differently? And I mean that when it comes in terms of the charges themselves and also the trial and how the, how the evidence was presented. Would you change anything? Well, I, I'll tell you, um, if, if even someone said, uh, hey, listen, uh, you pitched a no-hitter. Uh, is there anything that you would have changed? Uh, I bet a, a pitcher would say, yeah, I mean, that particular pitch in the bottom of the seventh inning, I, I might have uh, put a little more spit shine on it. I mean, you know, um, so I, I can't say that, that we try it exactly the same way if we had to, and thank goodness we don't have to. Uh, at least uh, it doesn't appear that way. But overall, I believe that it really captured the gravamen of the conduct that the defendant was engaged in. Uh, and obviously the jury uh, agreed with us. So count two and three, the charges that the jurors found Mr. Blankenship not guilty on, they were both charges for making false statements, one to investors and one to the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission. If you had to do it over again, would you still bring those charges? Well, obviously we believed in those charges. Um, we don't bring charges that we don't believe that we can uh, support at trial. Uh, we uh, we presented those charges to the federal grand jury. The federal grand jury uh, found that there was probable cause to believe um, that the defendant engaged in that conduct. Um, so um, I certainly believe that that they were appropriate charges. And, and as you heard the the juror talk about, there there were uh, a a large majority of, of the jury, uh, at least according to him, that believed uh, that the defendant was guilty on all counts. You brought up the grand jury, and so that's a perfect transition for me. Mr. Blanchard's testimony at points seemed to be a surprise to your team. It contradicted a lot of that grand jury testimony that he gave. Does your office have any plans at this point to pursue anything against Mr. Chris Blanchard? Well, I, I tell you, the, the last several days have been a whirlwind, uh, and um, we've worked extraordinarily hard, and, and the team, uh, Steve Ruby, Gabe Wall, uh, Greg McVeigh, Jim Lafferty, Jeff Carter, they've all worked extremely hard. Uh, you know, we're going to evaluate uh, and debrief on on just exactly what happened and, and where we go from here. Um, but, but that's going to be a little bit more time. I, I just can't really speak to that at this point. Mr. Taylor stood yesterday uh, after Judge Berger set the sentencing date for March 23rd of next year, stood yesterday to attempt to move the sentencing already. 
his his reasoning was he'll be out of the country that week. Can we push it back a week? But there are plenty of people speculating that they will attempt to push it back further and further and further. Will your office oppose moving that sentencing date? Well, there are a number of reasons why a, a sentencing date might be moved. It may take a little bit more time to put together the pre-sentence investigation report. So I, I really can't say that we would, uh, in, in all respects, oppose a movement of the, the sentencing date. We certainly would oppose any um, uh, movement of the sentencing date that's, that's just clearly not warranted, that's clearly done for purposes of delay. Um, rather than something that, that really needs to be done to, to make sure that, that we uh, have a fair and full sentencing in this matter. Uh, so, no, I, and I would expect that, that the court would look very askance at, at any movement of a, the sentencing hearing that isn't well-founded. Uh, and as, as you've noted uh, and, and seen throughout this trial, this judge has been exceptional at uh, – and exceptionally patient, but exceptional at um, keeping this uh, this moving train on the rails and moving forward. So I think she wouldn't uh, permit uh, the movement of the sentencing uh, any more than necessary. Set for the end of March could possibly be the first week in April. And it's possible, like you say, that it could move around a little bit. So then is it possible that you won't be around for the sentencing next year? Well, you know, Ashton, and we've talked about this, um, I've had a wonderful opportunity to lead uh, an office of very talented men and women for now five and a half years. I've been at the U.S. Attorney's Office for 15 years, um, but you know that this job is not a lifetime appointment, so there is certainly the prospect uh, that I'm going to have to find a job, uh, you know, another job in the not-too-distant future. Um, I'm going to have to visit with my wife, Amy, and my, uh, my boys and, and my family and friends to determine how best I can uh, serve the state of West Virginia, whether it's continuing this role until uh, they kick me out the door or, or finding another pursuit. Uh, I, just, I just don't know yet. That's, that's going to take some prayerful reflection. Is a transition into politics a possibility? Is it something that you and your family would consider? Well, you know my wife, Amy, uh, and uh, I think you know me pretty well by now. Um, I, uh, and, I, and you know my parents. Uh, we are all uh, very committed to public service, and um, this is what I enjoy doing. Uh, this is uh, the kind of work that I like to do. I like being able to get up every morning and feel like I'm making a positive change in a place that uh, I love and uh, for people that I care about. Uh, so I think that um, a, a, a life in public service is certainly one that I want to continue, uh, whether that requires uh, a um, a step into politics, I just don't know yet. 